Welcome to the Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscars. I'm your host, Jen Subchakta-Bankard, and I'm here with a genius. And geniuses are loners because they can't connect with the rest of us. It's Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? Are, are those human remains? Do you guys have a permit for that? I'm good, Jen. Good to be here. I'm so excited that we, you know, I think uh, now that we're in Oscar season, we're circling back and making sure we fill in some of the gaps for the show. And I'm so excited to talk about uh, our movie tonight and start to fill in some of those ones that we all crammed over Christmas and haven't gotten to talk about yet. Yes. And now we know what the 10 best picture nominees are. So we definitely have to kind of like, I think that's an easy place for us to sort of start in terms of like, okay, what do we have to cover over the next couple of weeks? So we are here today to review Cord Jefferson's American Fiction. Uh, it is an adaptation of a novel called, and Greg's going to help me out here. Erasure by Percival Everett, who is a colleague of yours at your institution, I believe. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know him or probably have ever shared a room with him because that USC is so huge. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. That now that now I feel guilty for not having read it. That's <laughs> even better. Um, all right, so yeah, we're we're talking about American fiction, and American fiction just very recently made it into the best picture ten, and so we are gonna at some point, probably towards the end, kind of talk about it's. This is I think this is the very first Oscars watch on our show that is actually like a real Oscars watch because some wow. things have been, like this film's been nominated for things and we can talk about whether or not they can win. So that's very exciting. Uh, so the uh, American fiction is playing in theaters right now. And I don't know if there's any, any sign of it going to a streaming service or anything. Do we know? I don't even remember what the, who the distributor is. For this. Well, it's, it's an MGM movie, so it should land on Amazon prime at some point, uh, one of the themes I think we might have to talk about tonight is the rollout has been a little rocky, I think, and done a disservice to it, um, though it did, like you say, netted five nominations, which is pretty good. So uh, I would say if I was Amazon, it would be there this weekend, but I don't know that they're going to rush it out that fast. But yeah, I bet by mid-February. I was going to say, don't hold your breath if you want to make sure you see this before the Oscars. I feel like if it does mm. come out on Amazon, it would be like right before or right after. I don't know. I, I, I still have yet to understand sort of like the decision making that goes behind those sorts of things. Because I'm like, why would you want your Oscar nominated movie to hit streaming after the Oscars are over? Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that feels like the point at which no one cares anymore. Um, but maybe they're thinking the opposite where it's like, but the buzz from it winning potentially is like the the perfect storm for it to to have tons of views but anyway uh if you are listening to us for the first time we will have a spoiler free section designed for those who have not yet seen american fiction first and then we'll make it very clear when we're going to shift into spoiler mode for the rest of the show greg if folks like what they hear and they don't want to miss another episode what can they do well, Jen, we're hoping that people are here because they're getting excited about the Oscars and that's bringing new attention to our podcast. So if you like what you hear, you should definitely go look up our past episodes. Uh, immediately before this in your feed, we have uh, a panel of Jen, PT, and Antonio going over all the nominations. And before that, we have our own uh, letters awards. So if any of those feel like good episodes, what you should do is seek out Long Take Review wherever you get fine podcasts. 
We host everything on Jen's Substack. And then you can find us on Instagram and threads where you can see a full listing. Um, if you go back over our catalog from the last six months, you can hit a bunch of Oscar contenders uh, and should have been Oscar contenders that uh, we've discussed. So seek us out in all those places. We love that you're here and we want to continue to have you part of our movie community. Amazing. Uh, so this is actually the perfect segue. I think we're going to do movie news, but it's basically like Oscar Greg's Oscar nominations takes. So <laughs> just in off the wire. It's your Hollywood news. <laughs> I couldn't, I, we have, it's been too long since I've heard that. So that's why I couldn't, I couldn't, help it. I didn't probably didn't really need to play that, but it's okay. So our listeners, we are recording this. On Wednesday, January 24th, the Oscar nominations just came out yesterday morning. And as Greg mentioned, we did record an episode with Antonio MPT last night. I'm still in the process of editing that. But and so we're, you know, we're we're banking this episode probably for early next week. And so by the time you listen to this, you'll be like, wait, the Oscars were last week. So yeah, we're recording just to keep that in mind. But Greg, I didn't want to, you know, continue without giving you the opportunity to get in some of your <laughs> Hot or cold, uh, Oscar nominations take. What did you What did you think about the Oscar noms? Um, you know, I think my take matches what a lot of critics are saying, which it's like, okay, it's roughly what we expected, and that's pretty cool, right? And you know, while that can be disappointing in some ways, it's also like it's a good year for movies, so it's hard to be upset about any of these. The the internet is currently on fire about Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie getting snubbed. Um, and I understand that it's really fun to say that that's horrible and nominating only Ken from the Barbie movie is the point of the Barbie movie. But I don't think that was the point of the Barbie movie. I think people only paid attention to half of the Barbie movie. Um, and we should also note America Ferreira got a nomination, which was probably one of the bigger surprises yesterday. And um, Margot Robbie's uh, performance is fantastic, but her work as a producer, I would say, is what really drove that project. And that gets a nomination because I think sometimes we forget best uh, best picture is a an award for producers. So so while the Internet is on fire, I'm, I'm a little upset. I think Greta Gerwig is incredible and incredibly talented, but I can't get outraged the way I've seen the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want you to just have to uh, warm over your takes from yesterday. But where did you land on on kind of the Barbie controversy? Right. I mean, I guess because I'm so predictions focused that I really was not surprised. Uh, mm-hmm. Knowing the director's branch, no, especially for Gerwig, kind of knowing what the landscape was for nominations. And and so, but it's not a good look, regardless. <laughs> regardless of the <laughs> rationale for how we got here, it's not a good look. And I think, you know, yes, the lots of podcasts, and, and I, I believe I actually did say this also on our, our recording last night, but you know, lots of podcasts are like, well, like the 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 Oscars just is biased against certain genres. Like it's they're biased against big blockbusters. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an IP movie. They're biased against comedy. Like I hear, I've been hearing that a lot. To be like, remember, Barbie is as as elevated and sophisticated and amazing as it is. It is a comedy at the end of the day about a doll. And so, <laughs> the the thing I think we neglected to really pause and and say explicitly yesterday when we recorded was. Maybe that should change, right? Like we're not saying mm. that that's okay. Like we're saying, oh, like the, let's let's put this in the context of what this what this 
this branch in what the larger academy usually does, but that doesn't mean we have to be okay with it, right? So, so hopefully this will sort of, you know, keep advancing hopefully the conversation about you know we have seen changes you know like when parasite won best picture that was shocking and marked what seemed to be a, a, a big turning point in terms of what can win at the oscars and so you know hopefully this the discourse surrounding barbie as tiresome as it might get because it's the internet and people being angry on the internet <laughs> um <laughs> you know could could sort of push push the academy forward and help it evolve I actually heard I was listening this morning to uh, the Awardist, which is the Entertainment Weekly, I believe, uh, po awards podcast. And they were sort of saying in terms of what's going to happen at the Oscars, that there's a very real possibility that all of the everyone being upset about Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie missing might actually help Barbie's chances in Best Picture. Mm, that it might be like a backlash vote of like yeah. people who are so incensed that they missed and that the Academy is not appreciating this movie that then it might win more than it normally would because people are like want to want to show their love for the movie. Yeah. And um, I also just want to note um, Amanda Dobbins on uh, Big Picture, who we are both uh, huge fans of, uh, really pointed out. The part that can feel icky is that it's like, I want to invite these people and want them to be on stage and in my crowd and and yet um, not actually honor them in any real way. Right. But, um, you know, I think I think uh, all the logic you just said also screams to me that there's a solid chance of um, Barbie going uh, getting adapted screenplay. I mean, that's a tough category, but that does honor Greta Gerwig uh, directly and and Noah Baumbach. Uh, if they shared duties on it. I will just say Greta Gerwig is, I think, the only filmmaker ever to have her first three uh, features nominated for best picture. That's huge. And it's amazing. Like, obviously we play the Oscars game cause that's what we do. But like, I'd rather be that person if I were a director and right. have you know, <laughs> kind of a really well respected body of work than, a, you know, any particular award or accolade. Um, I think, you know, and, and to your point, um, I think part of why the internet is so upset is this is one people actually saw and, you know, we're award show people, we see everything and, you know, often literally everything. And so it's easy for us to be like, this is a great slate of movies, but then, um, I, I love my sister. She has a busy job, three, three kids. She maybe gets out to two movies a year. And when she does that, it's something that means a lot to her. And I, I think she saw Barbie, but like, I, I think of her as a representative of these people who only got to one or two movies this year and they saw Barbie and they loved it. So I think if you're in, you're thinking that we need to change that IP and comedies get ignored, I think that could have an impact. I, I haven't, really written this essay, but in my mind, I have a thesis of like, perhaps this could be the moment for comedy that like get out was for horror. Mm. Everything everywhere was for sci-fi um, in that. Yeah. It takes the genre tropes, but it really says something powerful and meaningful with them. And um, you know, I, I do, I, I have always hated the Barbie criticism that, Oh, it's just feminism. One Oh one. It's like, Hey, look around the world. A lot of people need feminism. One Oh one. And, <laughs> Move on, and we should move on, but we kind of got to start with 101. So um, maybe there's a chance of that, and that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. And actually, if you think about the other nominees, comedies are poised to be on an upturn in general at the Oscars, right? Because we it's not just Barbie. American Fiction, the movie we're going to be reviewing today, 
is, I mean, I've heard it called a dramedy, but it is a comedy. It's very funny in many places. And I think the premise of it is just inherently comedic. And also the holdovers, right? Which is, yeah, yeah. we talked about like that, you know, a lot of the characters have very sad circumstances sort of surrounding them, but it is a, it's a very fu- funny, I mean, Paul Giamatti is hilarious. It's a very funny kind of antics-y, heartfelt sort of holiday movie, right? So, so uh, which I feel like having that many kind of in Best Picture is a little unusual in of itself. So who knows? We'll see. Yeah. And I laughed a lot at Oppenheimer. So no, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we said we on our Long Take Review Awards, the the letters, we said, we I think we, we were talking about Matt Damon as being... The fun part yeah. of Oppenheimer. So you're not you're not totally wrong. I laughed at what at his a lot of one liners. <laughs> so, but real quick, and then we'll move on. What was a surprise nomination that made you really happy? A surprise. I well, it has to do with our conversation tonight. I didn't think Sterling K. Brown was getting in, and so that one made me very very happy um, to to see that surprise. As silly as it seems. Um, Mission Impossible getting a little love because, you know, all respect to Oppenheimer, but Oppenheimer steamrolled Mission Impossible this summer. And I think that was Paramount's fault. They were like, not worried about it. Don't worry. It's mission. It'll be huge. And, you know, I think at the very last moment they realized um, I, I remember that week before it was supposed to come out Friday. And then they were like, surprise, we have Wednesday screenings and Oh, ultra, ultra sneak preview on Tuesday. And hey, are you free Monday? Come to Monday. And so I think they realized the mistake they were making in only getting the large format screens for a week. Um, I do think the business of Mission Impossible recovered slightly after kind of Barbenheimer was clear and everybody had seen those. So look, I don't think visual effects and uh, sound are the most like laudable categories at the Oscars. And I don't think it's going to win either of them. But I do kind of like that it, it got a little love here, um, you know, uh, because it, it was a fun time of the movies. Uh, the, the Right now, social media or my social media and um, my streaming services are flooded with advertisements for it coming to Paramount Plus. And it's like the best action movie ever. And my friend uh, <laughs> who knows I love Mission Impossible is like, I think I'm getting your targeted ads. And I was like, look, I like Dead Reckoning, but even I would say Fallout was a much better movie. So, uh, you know, they're trying and now they're dropping the part one. So we'll we'll see uh, how it all stacks up. But it was it was certainly not something I was expecting at all. And then the only other one I will note, uh, I know you're where your finger is and I'm not saying those words. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Wes Anderson was my other favorite. <laughs> I, I don't know that it was a surprise, but look, Asteroid City deserved more attention than it got. And I think um it's sad it didn't, but it's really great to see Wes in, in the category for live action short. And we reviewed those shorts. They're really good. And yeah. um, I'm I'm excited because I, I go to the live action um, shorts showcase in movie theaters, which everybody should do if it's in a theater near you. Um, I like to take one night and go to all the animated and the live action. You go to one set, get dinner, go to the other set. It's because you're hardcore, Greg. Spread it out. Well, true. And I like <laughs> sitting alone at Panera being like, yes, I am a cinephile yum, 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 in between. Uh, so uh, but uh, I'm excited that I'll get to see that short on the big screen, which is really cool. And and I think seeing the that kind of production design uh, in, in that context will be great. So. Uh, any of those you want to react to? Any of those on your list of things that made you happy? The thing I will point out, because we did not talk about this last night, Wes Anderson beat out Pedro Almodovar. 
because they were the two oh, yeah. big name big names vying in the shorts category this year, which is in of itself unusual. Uh, but I guess people just weren't that into the Pedro Pascal, uh, mm. Ethan. Uh, no, not Ethan Hawke. Sorry. Who was the other person in that movie? I think it was Ethan Hawke, wasn't it? It, it was. I, now you've got me guessing. I didn't see that. And, and I was kicking myself that I didn't get right. now uh, we'll never see it, it in the theaters. <laughs> well, exactly uh, what I was just thinking. Uh, straight Are you looking Ethan up Hawk. if it's Ethan Hawke? Yep. Okay. It's Ethan Hawke. So it, it, Wait, it's so a strange then, way of life. To go back to Wes Anderson, I really was very sad because I working my way through the Oscar final Oscars predictions because everybody except for us did that like right before nominations came out. So many people were like Wes Anderson for production design, Wes, you know, mm. Asteroid City for original screenplay. And I just was like, no, it's oh. not happening. <laughs> and I was right. I don't like when I don't like it when I'm right for things that should not be true. So, you know, in another in an alternate universe, those two nominations the, I feel like are no brainers. In the television special about the play of which yes. this is the movie, that is what happened. <laughs> they get nominated. Life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Okay. And I did, I, I totally called. I was in my, when I asked you what your happiest surprises were, I was like, I bet he talks about Mission Impossible. <laughs> Need I remind you, this means that we're probably going to get clips from De- Dead Reckoning at the Oscars. Nice, which is amazing. nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the funniest thing, uh, the I don't know exactly what inspired the sound group to do it, but if you consumed all the behind the scenes podcasts that I did, the funniest thing is that they had trouble getting the entity right. And what finally happened is um, I actually think he credits Edgar Wright, who saw an early cut and said, you need a cue that that tells us when the entity is present. Oh. And the sound guy came up with the weird little clicky noise that the entity oh, yeah. makes. And McQuarrie was like, what, what is that? And it really truly was one day he was in his house in his Bose sound bar, like malfunctioned and was making this weird noise. And that, you know, processed a little became the entity sound that, you know, is, was so effective. It scared president Biden. And now we have better AI laws. So God <laughs> bless mission impossible for saving us all. So <laughs> Tom Cruise saves the world in the Ugh. on screen and off. All, all right. The time. <laughs> I think we're, we're ready to talk about American fiction. And we will circle back to Oscars talk for that film specifically towards the end. But Greg, what is your short take? I know for a fact that you are a huge fan of this film, but what's your kind of short take on it? Um, Jen, what is my short take? All right. So we've spent all year talking about, you know, um, every kind of movie. And I think the episodes I've been on, I've gotten to like share how much I love big movies right and and a lot of even the you know the mission impossibles the the uh the guardians of the galaxy the marvels all these kind of blockbustery things and i and even things like napoleon and um you know killers of the flower moon kind of feels big to me um what i love about this movie is that it's a small movie and it kind of scratches an itch i forget i have sometimes that I just like movies that are small and intimate and about real people and real ideas. And um, this movie uh, really spoke to me in so many ways, but I will say broadly, like 
it seemed to me like if you went to a lab and were like, what are the things Greg's interested in? Let's pour those all in a beaker and shake it up. This movie came out. And so I, I just loved almost everything about it. Um, I, I have a couple of things I want to bring up that I, I, I didn't absolutely love, but I just love being reminded that this is what movies and big awards movies can be is something that isn't life or death and is just mm-hmm. kind of um, intimate. And I liked that a lot. And we've had some good ones this year. This isn't the only one, but it fit in that mold nicely for me. So I, I loved this a lot. I did too. I really, it just, yeah, this movie made me really happy. I th- and I, if I think back on why that is, like what about it was making me so happy. One, I think is the blend of comedy and trauma. Cause I feel like if the screenplay weren't so well constructed and blended, right. Blending those two elements, it would feel like two different movies because, and actually I forgot to say what the premise was at at the the top Hmm. when I was saying that introducing what we were talking about today. So I guess I'll do that. Now the premise of this movie is that the character, the main character monk is an author, a very pretty prolific author who has not really sold his books have sold, but he he's not super popular. Right. Uh, and so he gets really frustrated because all these publishers are telling him your books aren't black enough. We need, you know, we need something that people that, that that's kind of more in line with, he would say with stereotypes. Right. But that's a nice, <laughs> nice discussion they have throughout the movie about, is that really what it is? And uh, you know, so then he, he sort of like, the, the movie, the one half of the movie is him dealing with that issue and being like kind of wrestling with how much he's willing to quote unquote sell out. Uh, and then the other half is this really, really touching family drama. And that and, I, you know, if you had to ask me to pick which one, I probably would lean towards the family story because I and that's what took me by surprise when I saw it. That might be because the trailers don't really include too much about that. But the characters of, of his family members that we we meet throughout the film they they feel so grounded and fully formed and just real they feel like real people and i think that has to be considered and maybe this is getting too far into like potentials we're bumping up against spoilers already i guess but like (laughs) the i feel like the themes of the other half that are about storytelling and culture and race and identity i feel like doesn't come across as strongly if you don't have the family as well written as they are right it's part of the all and and so like i was just marveled at how marveling at how well connected those two parallel stories were because i feel like and i know you weren't on i keep talking about this recording we just did that you weren't on so i apologize <laughs> for that we had an extended conversation about how maestro doesn't do that um mm. so or doesn't do that as well and then like you know um, we'll, we'll save, we'll save more of a discussion on that for when we actually have to do, um, a, a full review of it. But, you know, that, so that was, that was for me, what's, what took me by surprise. Um, and then of course, Jeffrey Wright. Amazing. He's so yes. good. Yeah. Well, there's actually, I don't think there's a bad performance in this. I, mm. Jeffrey Wright, Sterling K. Brown, Tracy Ellis Ross, um, uh, not a huge role, but like owns every second she's on screen in a really fun way. Um, and then uh, there's there's uh, the elderly mother and and her housekeeper. Uh, apologies for not knowing those. Lorraine. Lorraine. Uh, all of those. That's my mom's name. That's the only reason I remember. Oh, OK. <laughs> 
So all of those are really, like you said, real people and good performances and people that feel like they've wandered into your life and you're getting to know them um, really nicely. So, um, but by far, this is what I've wanted Jeffrey Wright to do. And so um, inspired by this movie and seeing this movie in December, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Jeffrey Wright is going to be my letterbox project this year. I want him to be my most watched actor. And I, you know, pulled up his list of films and started going through them. And it's like, you forget that he's just been present for so long because it's like, oh, right. He's Gordon in The Batman. And I get to do a couple Wes Anderson movies. And, oh, right. I get to do all the Daniel Craig Bond movies. And it's like uh, so easy to forget that he's in those roles. Um, But he's always delivered on whatever he's given and seems to be a very serious and thoughtful actor. So to see him get the the leading man spotlight and to get a nomination for it, which I think is a really good nomination, is just really exciting. And I hope it's not a one and done. I hope this is a case where it's like, oh, we do really value this performer that we've taken for granted and, and are looking forward to to all that he can do um, going uh, in, a, in, a, in the next few years. He had a good run on television. We shouldn't ignore either. I mean, I think Westworld helped raise his profile significantly and... Um, you know, I know you love him as the watcher in Marvel, right? Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, it's, it's such a good uh, voice actor, too. His, his voice is perfect for that. And, you know, we should we should say we've mentioned this on other shows before, mostly the Wes Anderson ones, but he really should have gotten nominated for French Dispatch. He was just incredible. <sighs> so he's so. So, yeah, I'm and I'm I'm really glad because while he was sort of knockout crazy good in French Dispatch, it was kind of like a small role that was only in one one section of the movie, right? So just by nature mm. of the structure of that film. So yeah, like you're saying, I'm, it's really nice that he has this leading role to be able to really show off what he can do. And I think he's also why the, the blend of comedy and drama works so well is because his performance is so seamless when he mm. has to be really funny, but then also like really sad and, and brooding and you know, emotionally disconnected from, from people, other people in his life and all that kind of stuff. And it's, yeah, he made, he made me really like a character that probably could have been unlikable. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think the book character was felt a little more unlikable to me and whether Mm -hmm. that's the page or it's his performance, I'm not entirely sure, but like it is a, it's a, it's not a Giamatti curmudgeon, but it's a curmudgeonly dude. And, you know, your your quote you used to introduce me is is kind of defines him, which is, yes, you're a genius, but you lean so hard into that genius. You're a loner and you can't actually relate to anybody. And um, where we find him at the start of the film is is very much that. And and the film actually begins with a, a classroom scene, which is played for for comedy and yet is like ripped from the headlines of like what our conversations are like on college campuses right now. And he doesn't come across as completely reasonable in that scene, even though I think the comedy plays towards his perspective a little bit more than, than the student's perspective. It's a conflict between him and a student. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I think that, helps a lot uh, that it's him like you said to kind of ground that performance and and make us uh pull into it um before we go to recommendation algorithm i just wanted to shout out um i was not familiar with cord jefferson the director this is his first film um this puts him in a again a, a pretty elite club of of directors who first film get nominated for um uh, best picture. I think it's 
well, Gerwig, as we just mentioned, but it's also like Kubrick and Albert Brooks. It's like really like a group of people you'd want your name um, mentioned alongside. Um, and uh, again, where Jeffrey Wright had a good run on television, uh, Cord Jefferson has been a part of some of the my favorite television projects in the last few years. I did not know um, prior to seeing it that he uh, was a writer on The Good Place, probably my favorite show of the last 10 years. Um, and also Watchmen, which is phenomenal, and um, Master of None, which I, I think I really enjoyed the first two seasons and somehow never got to the third. But all of those shows, like... Um, have that same balance. So um, mm. as we slide or drift into recommendation algorithm, if any of those things I just mentioned, maybe Watchmen's a little bit of an outlier there, but if if you like the tone and the balance of comedy and drama in those things, I think you'll find that this is very much of a piece with those. Um, and the larger Mike Schur television project, which seems to be decent people being decent, um, this is kind of that, right? People who are flawed and make mistakes, but decent people trying to be decent and trying to figure out what that is. I think that all works really well here in this movie as well. Definitely agree. So we have officially moved in. Greg has moved us into the recommendation <laughs> algorithm in which we establish the audience of a film. There we go. Not as creepy as the entity, but still pretty. <laughs> but pretty close. Actually, not that yeah. far off. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you've already started talking about this, but what, you know, who are you recommending this movie to? Do you think like what what type of person in your life do you think should go see this movie? Uh, well, only half answering your questions, I will say when I return to campus for faculty meetings, um, I oversee some part time instructors and I bumped into one who was, I think, just doing some copying. And she the first thing out of her mouth was, did you see American fiction? It's so good. And um, it made me so happy because um, she is, you know, like us, somebody who thinks a lot about teaching and books in that kind of world. And so I think it really appeals to, to academic types just by nature of the character being a professor and, and that being a, a part of the story. But it, she, the, this instructor is also somebody who, you know, is uh, probably a solid 20 to 30 years older than me. And, uh, you know, not necessarily somebody I think of as really interested in race and representation and identity issues. And yet this really spoke to her because I think it, it, uses comedy to open up those issues and allows you to laugh and knowing that you're laughing means you're thinking about these issues in the right way, I think. And so I would encourage people who, uh, feel like they want to be a part of those conversations that are so important to our moment. And yet, even if you get a little nervous, which I think a lot of people do when those conversations come up, that this is a, a good entry level. This movie never lectures at you and yet mm. delivers a solid kind of thought provoking thesis about modern issues of race in America, which is pretty like killer that it's able to do that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I was thinking that earlier when I was sort of trying to formulate my short take, but I feel like you hear through various characters debating with each other like every character in this movie is kind of wrestling with these questions and and in a lot of ways the way that they're sort of just going back and forth models like a political debate right but not never in a way that feels like a ho hostile or like to me it's not clear like it isn't like one-sided like the film has chosen a side of this debate mm. and it, and it's just sort of like paying lip service to other points of view it feels like it is much more of like a an earnest dialectic and i'm in particular thinking of 
Jeffrey Wright's character and Issa Rae's character. I feel like mm. the conversations that they have, which we'll get into in spoiler mode <laughs> in, yeah, very yeah, shortly. Yeah. Um, but to me, those were the meatiest where I was like, oh, wow. Like, and you can really see the kind of the ethos of the film sort of coming through in a way that, like you said, is not didactic. It's not sort of like calling out anybody. It's it's sort of saying, you know, like these these issues are important, but they're also complicated in a way that I think is makes it very, very approachable because you don't feel like you have to have the right answer. I think that's right. And and I think the the changing of the title and why American fiction was chosen, I assume, is is trying to do that. Right. Like and to me, what the title is saying is like, this is what it is to be in America and be thinking about these issues and this kind of general theme of we're trying to do better on race and racism and so on. And yet we're really not as far along as we might pat ourselves on the back and think about it. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, so while it's not trying to lecture to you, do I think it would be great, uh, as a professional development for like faculty and (laughs) so on? Yes, I do. Uh, but, uh, it, it really works. I would also just share this with people in my life who like, um, kind of an easy light time at the movies. Uh, again, we love, awards season movies but it's not exactly a walk in the park to be like hey just grab zone of interest grab some popcorn and have a good no right it's it's like a serious you know and and should be serious treatment of a really hard topic so i think i have people in my life where they see how much i love awards movies and they're like i can't put in that work this is one i would be like this isn't work and and i would liken it to the holdovers in the same way both of those would be at the top of my yeah grab these two they're you know they're fun they're interesting they'll challenge you but not hurt you in any way uh as uh some of our favorites but also uh really difficult movies can do yeah no i i co-sign that and i feel like it's not shying away from tragedy or difficult issues and i mean that both on the character level and in the sort of like social issue sense but at the same time it's so yeah, like you said, easy, easy to watch because it's fun and funny and you want to spend time with these characters. And they are, like you said, good people trying to do do good and do their best. And, 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 and you know, I think that 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 is always an easy sell. That's a really good question. Yeah, because the other day I was someone was asking me, OK, 10 best. This was yesterday, like 10. The best picture nominees are out. They're looking at the list and they're like, which of these realistically which of these do i want to go see and i think it speaks to what you were just talking about of like i'm not gonna say zone of interest <laughs> even though i myself actually haven't seen that one yet but you know i mean i'm not gonna there's certain ones where i'm like and eh, maybe that's not for you uh but the more kind of you know and the word that oscar critics use all the time is crowd pleaser right mm. which actually became more negative i think than it needed to be when people were fussing about coda winning best picture um <laughs> Right. But like so now it kind of is like a it's it's like a tainted word, I think, in some ways when some people use it. <laughs> um, but I I would say, like, if you're, you know, recommending movies that are awards movies to friends, I think like that's that's something you have to take into consideration. Not everyone wants to watch something that's depressing and bleak from start to finish. And yeah, this yeah. is not that. Well, I think our conversation about Anatomy of the Fall, where it was uh, we kind of loved the ambiguity some people get really turned off by that. And um, it's uh, here we have ambiguity treated in a crowd pleasing way. Right. And Mm -hmm. kind of in a fun way. And we, we can unpack that more in moments in 
the spoiler section. Spoiler mode. Yeah, my last recommendation algorithm thing would be if you, like me, enjoy smart people having smart, witty conversations, this movie is full of them. <laughs> it's so it's so good because it's like the, the, the main character's family, all of them are super duper smart, super accomplished. And obviously, I think yeah. in the context of the film being about race and identity, that is very purposeful, I'm assuming. But but it's also just makes it, it to me it made it such an enjoyable watch. So, yeah. Um, all right. So we are. Greg is hinting. We're pushing us towards spoiler mode. So if you have not seen American fiction and you do not want the film spoiled for you, do not proceed. We you know, we just recommended it. So go go out, have a good time at the movies. Come back and rejoin us for the rest of the conversation. All right. Are there huge... I mean, I guess like the pl- when I was describing the plot premise, I was trying to be very, very careful because I feel like built into the plot premise of like what the movie is all about, especially with the publishing thing, is is a spoiler, right? Because if you don't mm. know, but I guess that was in the tra- I don't remember what's in the trailer. So yeah, what I'm well, referring to is him is is him pretending to be he has the pseudonym and he's pretending has this whole other persona of a different author, right? That it's really him and he doesn't. No one knows. Is that a spoiler? Yeah, I- no, I I mean it was in the trailer. I think mm-hmm. um the uh, part of the weird rollout this film had um I I think All Fall was getting really impressed by this trailer that really leaned into the you you divided out the two plots, uh the literary plot, right? And the idea of his book and it's not selling and really played up Issa Rae, which if you're marketing a movie, yeah, play up Issa Rae and she's really good in this film. She's President Barbie, um, like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it leaned into that and kind of the fun it's having with Ray and racism and and the trailer made it even almost seem um like it's really spoofing on white people like dramatically which i you know it probably turned off people who weren't going to see this movie anyway but i can see where that maybe turned people off um when i saw all of us strangers um i think the first weekend in january second weekend in january there was a trailer for american fiction attached to the front that was 100 percent about the family drama and all about uh the the brothers and the mom and and like getting through life and i was like am i making this up like neither trailer was a lie or misrepresented the film but they were cut entirely differently really to be like probably like um you know two-thirds one-third uh in each direction um both were present in the other so um so yeah i think that's a little bit of a spoiler i would say um perhaps the most shocking moment is um i alluded to tracy ellis ross not being in this long she dies very abruptly and suddenly um in only her third scene or so and yeah i want to talk about I want to talk about that in terms of adaptation because there's something there. Uh, but um, I do think that that was a pretty shocking kind of turn because um, she was very prominent in, I think, both of those trailers um, as as a part of this project. So mm-hmm. um, I mean, she's a big that... name. Don't blame them. Yes. Well, and, and I did not watch Blackish, but I know that it was huge and that would really draw in a, a lot of people who might not otherwise check out a small indie movie. So um yeah, um, I guess where where I'll begin, and and this is like my thesis for why I really love this movie, and um, couldn't say it till now, is that, and I think you were hinting at this, and and why it's there is. I think if if the two halves of this movie did not both exist, you wouldn't get this beautiful thesis. And the thesis of the film is that. 
to tell a black story, you just tell a real American family story and they happen to be black. And that blackness mm-hmm. plays a part in that. It's not ignored. It's not diminished. But it is just the fact that they're they're um you know, they happen to be black and they're still dealing with the same stuff we're all dealing with. And this is essentially Jeffrey Wright's, uh, sorry, uh, Monk's position, the character's position, not the actor's position. And um, the film actually eventually says this. And I was a little mad that the film says this because the book just implies it. And you get to have that aha moment kind of late in the book where you're like, oh, when we're talking about money problems and we're talking about how to care for your elderly parent and we're talking about the troublesome relationship between siblings all of that is just a a set of problems we all face and it's completely relatable and and to monk's point it doesn't matter if these characters are black or not it's just part of life and i i really think the film um just pulled its punch just a little didn't quite trust the audience as much as i i wanted it to but i really think that that's a really smart construction of a movie and it's it's executed very well despite that minor quibble yeah i agree i think and if i just to pick up on what you're saying about pulling punches but i feel like the only critique i might have of the movie is that i loved the the scene where monk finally confronts the Issa ray character about what she's doing and her project and her defense of what she's doing is so powerful and compelling Mm. and really like takes him to task for even accusing her of what he's accusing her of right of 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 pandering right and she's and hers you know part of her response is i i don't have a problem giving the market what it wants right so it's like a very (laughs) pro-capitalist argument on the one hand um but then on the other hand she's like talking about you don't you don't you don't know what I did to write this book. Like I interviewed lots of people. And so it really is this genuine question of like, who gets to tell whose stories and, and they, they represent such two different, very different points of view, both of which are flawed, I think in some ways or not, or not like the quote unquote answer to, to this issue. But like, yeah. And, but I feel like my one critique is that it doesn't, the, the film doesn't push past where they lock Mm. heads or like what's the what's the idiom i'm looking for <laughs> were, they, were they butt heads sorry lock heads yeah lock uh, horns or butt heads yeah yeah okay thank you um yeah so when they're when they're sort of at the stalemate uh, sitting across from each other at the table with their like chicken caesar salads or whatever <laughs> whatever it is <laughs> i don't know just that scene felt very real to, as a lot of scenes as an academic like felt very real to me of like people sitting in yeah. an empty classroom or conference room like eating salads i don't know um <laughs> but anyway the the it it kind of didn't tr- attempt to push towards any kind of resolution or like, and maybe I wouldn't have wanted that if they tried to do that. But that's what I, I felt kind of like we stopped one step too soon and it mm. didn't kind of like really go there in a way. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think. I like what they did with the ending, although it is a pretty big swing and we'll we'll unpack that on its own. But if I had a wish list for the scenes we didn't get at the end, um, he doesn't reveal that he has written this book until the last moments of the film. And one more scene where Issa Rae gets to call him out and do the next round of that conversation would right. be really good. Yeah. And and I just want to make it make sure it's clear to to listeners. So, you know, Issa Rae is roughly a punchline for the first half of the book. She's written this book that uses really like, um, you know, 
tropes of the ghetto and uh, mothers, uh, single mothers and all this kind of stereotyping of, of black culture in America. And like every time she speaks, it's a punchline. And the first half of the movie, everybody outside of monk is in love with this book and particularly the white characters, but, but also, uh, you know, the, the, uh, love interest and other people are, are like in love with this book. And he is motivated to call bullpucky on this. Uh, that's Rachel Maddow's uh, way to get around explicit, uh, language. Uh, so he calls bullpucky on like, like this isn't what black culture is. This is so fake. Um, and then is, spends his time writing his own fake version of this um, and builds that out. And um, the confrontation she'd seen um, is him uh, is sitting in a room with her and finally saying to her face, like he disrespects the book she wrote. And I, I think you, when you brought it up at, in the, the um, pre spoiler section, you said it exactly right, which they could have left her as a punchline, but it has much more interesting questions yeah. to ask. And that scene is is really probably the showcase of the the movie, despite it not featuring uh, Sterling K. Brown, who also got nominated. Um, but uh, I think it really um, demonstrates for all the reasons you just articulated that, like, no, it it is about who gets to tell these stories. It is about what is respected in literature, which is a mm. conversation that is very hard to have. We try to do it in classrooms sometimes, and it's a very difficult conversation to have, but it, to me, it also spoke to, um, you know, I'm very enculturated in book culture, uh, because, uh, my wife, uh, is a bookseller, uh, and, uh, just we we both read way too much and um there's this huge divide right now because the most popular authors are often derided as like chick lit right like mm. oh like uh like a colleen hoover that's not a real author that's just chick lit and if the book is a pink cover and has a like instagram worthy picture on the front it gets dismissed and i think it's the same set of questions here right it's like there's a and, and we see this in film too right but there's a way in which high culture just dismisses all these genres mm -hmm. like a barbie um this is linking into our, our oh, oscar yeah. reactions uh but um but i think there's this movie is actually trying to say like you can't dismiss any of it like it's all meaningful and it's all real and and i i like that it went on to say that because i think it could have been pretty mean spirited in a in a different hand, set of hands what you're saying is reminding me that there's actually a scene at the very beginning when the the department head or whoever it is that telling him because of the incident with the student got offended and but that that in that conversation whoever the other for faculty member is in the room who really hates him they have a back and forth and the insult that monk throws at him is that he writes airport books right? oh yeah yeah so there's like yes. this elitism and like kind of highbrow lowbrow tension there as well um and so i think yeah that's a yeah, it's so interesting that it's like this this question of like literary taste and quality. I mean, this movie features a literary contest where people are actually literally evaluating. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. I can't, can't help it. Uh, evaluating books, right? Whether or not they're good. And I feel like that the the sort of like elitism and the classism almost built into that conversation really echoes sort of the conversation the characters are having about race because it's because mm. for monk it really is this the stereotypes are intersectional right like it's like it's not just the stereotypes about black people but it's stereotypes about 
black people as being lower class right and and mm. that like all the stereotypes he has a problem with and are like about you know low income uh, in and out of jail getting pregnant all the time right like all the stereotypes are tied to a class distinction and yeah and so i feel like that's really interesting to sort of see that parallel like that to me that's why the movie has to be about publishing and about literature mm. Um, because that you can kind of get at that conversation from both of those angles. It's certainly um, then to to back up to a point you made before too, like that's why it's brilliant that every member of this family is both very smart and, you know, hyper intellectual, um, but also wealthy, right? I mean, uh, uh, there is part of the premise of him needing to write this book is, is a money crisis. So it's not like a bottomless pit of money, but uh, you know, this is brought on by his sister is a doctor and then they lose her. Uh, his brother has gone through a messy divorce, so he doesn't have money at the moment. But the family has uh, a nice beach house. They have a beautiful house. Like if this is an right. upper class black family. And they have a housekeeper. The, right? They have a, yes, a long term, you know, decades long housekeeper and so on. So it's immediately. A, and, and those are the parts of this. I don't think it's really like hanging a lantern on. It's just like. Yes, here is an upper class black family. And and I know, I, again, I, that's what I understand the premise of blackish is. And I think this, you know, our generation, um, noting the scandal uh, of the key figure, but our generation grew up on the Cosby show. And this really was kind of a revelation at that moment of like, oh, we can have an upper class black professional family on television each week. And they're just like us. And they have funny things just like us. And it's like, incredibly disappointing that 30 years later we're like hey guess what uh not everybody fits the exact profile you have in your mind um but yet i think we need it again and we need this reminder um within that um so i'll, I'll bring up i, I want to bring up a few different adaptation pieces of this but one that's really interesting in this regard the movie maintains that the sister is um uh she's a a uh, I guess she's a gynecologist or she's a, a pregnancy doctor. Uh, if there's OBGYN. OBGYN. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I even have two kids. I got to get over this. Uh, uh, and um, in the movie, uh, it's clear, but not super specified that she works at a, a, a clinic that provides abortion among other services in the book. She is actually killed by an abortion activist. So Whoa. the, the kind of, one piece of this story in the book mm. is like, hey, when you tell a black story, you're telling an American story. You're telling about these issues that are facing us all and that this is, you know, and I I am nervous that they skipped that because of how touchy with the overturning of Roe v. Wade right. all those issues are at the moment. But I also I, I kind of think maybe it was more that they were just worried it would derail the film and then it would get known as oh it's the the yeah. you know abortion movie or right. they or, thought it would just know. be distracting from everything else yeah and and yet you know by just changing that into a sudden heart attack instead that that was probably one of my biggest surprises i'm like wait what yeah, like you, they're, you they're that that? like because i i think it, it's roughly structured the same except she then goes to work the next day and he gets a call and that there's been an incident mm, at okay. her clinic and um, 
So that was surprising and understandable in some ways. I do think, you know, the sudden uh, health crisis also, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk this year. We've lost a lot of black men, uh, male actors, and people are pointing out like this is you're not understanding. This is just the shorter life expectancy of black men in America because of all sorts of health issues that don't get diagnosed and don't get treated properly. You know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman, uh, uh, you know, was, was a part of that trend. And, um, you know, uh, we are not acknowledging that side of mm. our kind of racism and inequality, uh, you know, problems in America today. So I do think that the change brings that up in a small way, which is maybe helpful, but, um, you know, it was surprising anyway. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So I'm going to ask a somewhat uncomfortable question. Mm. And that is, you know, for, first of all, I mean, maybe listeners don't know, but ne <laughs> neither of us are black, right? Like, we just need to establish that. I probably should have established that earlier on in the show. Um, but uh, just as a way of like, we are limited in terms of how we can speak to the, some of these issues because we have not experienced them ourselves. Um, but my point is that non-black people and in particularly non-black literary critics, right, which hits a little closer to home for us probably, are really the butt of the joke. And kind of the, the I don't want to say the villain in the movie, but they're being uh, indicted and called out, right? Um, as like they are thinking that by by fawning over Issa Rae's book or Monk's sort of fake book, that they are they are respecting Black culture. And the, the phrase that gets used over and over again is like stories that don't get told or like where are my st are my people's stories? Like I think Issa Rae's character says that at some point, or like so. There's this kind of like a white liberal crusade that a lot of the characters in the film have that are like like we're doing a good thing by celebrating these these books as opposed to reinforcing stereotypes. And so my question is: Has non-black viewers of the film is there a way to like this film without also being implicated in that problem? Yeah. Um... I'm going to stall for time by referencing two specific moments that I think show this brilliantly. So there's, there's a moment where Issa Rae is giving a reading. Um, <laughs> Monk has left an all too familiar conference uh, room where there's nobody at his panel. And oh, I've been there. <laughs> and it, it, it was like, Oh man, that, that hits deep. And then he goes, then she's in a giant hall and she's, you know, speaking and, and it's a huge crowd. And there's a moment where he's standing at the back of her reading, looking bewildered and like what is this claptrap and uh in the frame a white woman jumps up and starts clapping enthusiastically blocking him out of the frame which is is kind of a beautiful visual representation of that and that kind of self-congratulatory mode that um i think i will say i felt called out by and that i felt rightfully called out by right and then the second moment um which is all too familiar to my many years at higher education at many institutions i'm not calling out any specific one but in the after um Issa Rae and monk have their confrontation the awards committee is choosing the winner and they choose the fake book uh which we won't say the fake title of at that point because we'll get the explicit warning but what my pathology becomes um uh 
and they choose that book despite the objection objections of Issa Rae and Monk. And um, they say, you know, we have to choose this because black voices are so important right now. We have to listen to them. And, and <laughs> as they are actively avoiding the black voices in the room saying, this is not a good representation right. of us. Right. Because it's a three to two vote. Right. Because Monk yeah. and the Issa Rae, I can't, I, I feel bad. I don't remember the character's name. The Monk, Monk and the Issa Rae character vote, both vote no because they were like, this, this is not, this is not good literature. I think Issa Rae's character says that it's like soulless, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, but then they, they get totally ignored. And which, yes. Sintara Golden is her character. Oh, there we go. Thank you. That's right. okay. I feel less bad because it's a very <laughs> specific name. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's specific a pretty name. good fake author name, uh, is, giving them is. credit for that. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I actually, the opening scene with the student shows that as well, right? Because, because Monk sort of says, well, if I'm okay with it, shouldn't you be? And she mm. just totally ignores his his feelings and thoughts about it. And he's, she's just like, I'm really offended, right? Um, yeah. And it's like, well, who get, like, are you really the person who should decide whether or not <laughs> something like that is offensive if, if you are not the subject of the slur or whatever, right? You know what I mean? Um, and so I think, and I think that's, that's really at the core of the, the movie is this idea of, well, shouldn't, because Monk's stance is like, I am black, therefore this book is black, mm. <laughs> right? In the bookstore where he's like arguing with the guy of like which section or like what, I don't remember. He's what, arguing it, it shouldn't against, be in the, the right. African-American literature section, right? Like, yeah, just because right. I'm black doesn't mean this is a, a book about the black experience. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah. But then he also does the flip side, I think, with the editor where when he's his 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 work is being accused of not being black enough. He's like, I am black, therefore. Oh, the you're right. You're right. Yeah. Right. He does he say that at ways. one point. <laughs> he wants it both ways. So that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I feel like it's a lot of the the non-black characters in the film are always the ones deciding what should and should not be counted as black, right? And that's yeah. more the problem, maybe. Um, but I think it does a really good job of showing that over and over again. Um yeah, well, we uh, yeah. when we talked about Barbie, and maybe I'm starting to see more and more shared DNA, we talked about how all the types of toxic masculinity are kind of masterfully called out. And um, uh, Greta Gerwig was on Marin, I think, a week ago, and she was talking about the the very complicated pavement joke about uh, Leonard Cohen in a post-punk something. but And um, she was talking about how she's like, I knew only like three people would get that joke, but the ones that got it would <laughs> really be hurt in like the best possible way. And I, I think when we had our conversation, we, we joked about those ways in which it calls out these types of toxic masculinity. And, and I think this film is calling out a lot of toxic whiteness and it's, it's the kind of conversation we should be having, not just in academia or in culture in general, but you know, I, I complain sometimes that, um, you know, workplace uh, DEI efforts, you get the 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 first level class over and over and over again. And I think that lets people take a pass and they're like, well, I'm not actively discriminating. I am not using racial epithets. So I'm a good guy. I'm a, a good person in this fight. Whereas I think this kind of way, the, the ways in which uh, whiteness is toxic in this film are the much more insidious ways that 
particularly speak to the NPR liberal bookstore, you know, um, it it really reminded me um, right after, um, I think it was right after uh, President Trump was elected, SNL did a skit about the bubble and the bookstore in the bubble only sold Ta-Nehisi Coates books. And I loved that as a joke because it is, it's (laughs) like, oh yeah, we only read one book and then we pat ourselves on the back for reading uh, a book about, uh, you know, racism in America. And then we're all set. Like, yay, we did it. Like, let's celebrate. And, um, you know, academia is, is always very guilty of those things, but also thinks about them a lot more than other parts of our culture. Of course. And, you know, I think we both love and celebrate the Oscars, but, you know, there's obviously a big, rich history of these kind of divides. We're talking about class divides, like you talked about, genre divides, but also obviously racial divides. So um, it's pretty good at calling those out. Uh, can I ask you your thoughts on the ending since we haven't? Yeah. What'd you make of that? So I I was, I have mixed feelings, I think is the short answer. Well, on the one hand, I think it's so clever because it really is getting at this idea of selling out. And, and I think, again, you said, you said the title works really well for the themes of the film. And I, I think the ending reinforces that because it's like, uh, and it, it, but it just transfers the situation from, uh, literary publishing to film filmmaking, right? Um, mm. Because Monk is now a screenwriter, and he's like, <laughs> instead of telling things as they actually happened, because I think we actually never get a version of it that is actually what happened. I think we can talk about that in a second. Yeah, you know what I mean, like we get multiple endings, but I think none of them are the quote unquote real ending. But yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. I want to hear your thoughts. Um, but I feel like because he's just like he he isn't. No, he's no longer concerned about telling the story authentically. He is completely playing into genre sort of expectations. Like, because first he's because they they use the language of genre to sort of critique every ending. Because I think the 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 producer or whoever the white executive film executive is says like, no, 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 that's too much like a romantic comedy. Like, mm. and then finally the really violent, grim you know, police brutality ending is the one that he's like, that's it. Like, this is, that's what we're looking for. And so, so it's interesting just to see Monk completely sell out and just be worried about like how to, it's no longer about telling a story authentically. It's about constructing and fabricating a story in a way that will, that people can recognize from a a genre perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like, like what is a dramatic story? Cause it really is questioning like what counts as a good story just brought yeah. regardless of anything that we've been talking about. Right. Um, because like, why is it that the dramatic ending that's really exaggerated where like, they're like 10 cops shooting one person, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> why is that the thing that we want from our stories? I think it's kind of asking that by showing how ridiculous that, that scene was. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't, yeah. And, and yeah. So I don't know. What do, what do you think? Like, do you feel like, what do, what do you feel like the ending is trying to tell us or show us? Well, I will just note in passing that I think that was the thing that I was stuck on as I yeah. left the movie. I'm like, oh, that was bold. And I think if somebody were to say it absolutely did not work for me, I would I would get it. Um, I think the ending is 
almost like you said, like he is selling out. So it almost is that he has now become the the character he hated, the Centara Golden mm-hmm. Issa Rae character, um, that he actually just just went that way as a part of it. But I think you're right to ask a bigger question about what kind of stories we want to tell and what we demand for stories. Um, the the first ending is he gets up and he walks to the podium and as he's about to speak, they cut off and the producer says, that's a book ending. That can't work in a movie. Yeah. And I just want to point out that is literally the book ending. So oh, it is. Okay, that, great. that is like how the, the novel ends. So it's, it's like in that moment, um, Monk becomes Percival Everett in that moment in some ways. And then the second ending does feel happy and cliche and all the things that we would kind of make a sentimental right. all the resolution we would want as viewers yeah yes and um it's very I, I i can't remember the exact language but he says very clearly like neither of those happened like that didn't happen like i yeah. i went home and sat alone that night he didn't reconnect i think right and I think then he, he said says, like they don't text even. she's not like, returning she, my calls yeah. Right. Yeah. So there is no happy romantic couple at the end. Right. And so that so, like, ending, she's not e- arguably she's not even there because the every version yeah. of the ending shows her walking into the ballroom. Right. And in theory, that's like he's revealing the truth to the crowd, but really he's revealing it to her, which is again yes. a very like classic literary Hollywood kind of narrative thing. trope. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So yeah, that, she's not even there, that, right? She's still mad at him. I think is the real the real situation. right. Hasn't forgiven him. Is is not getting over the nasty things he said. Kind of like a real relationship. So that ending is actually Little Women, right? That's oh yeah. The, the play Greta Gerwig does with her mm-hmm. Little Women is that they give you the rom com ending, and um, which is the ending of the original novel. But she's she has her Joe say like yeah it's not really that like that's right. not what happened but i i want to sell the book right and i think that book makes or that film makes a more capitalist argument that like mm. if i own my work i'm gonna make it sell but i'm gonna control it and so on and so um so that is a really interesting piece of, of that second ending and then the third ending i think almost starts to push back at awards culture um, mm-hmm. it is an award ceremony in all three and i think that ending were that just the straight ending of this film this would be remembered as what a powerful statement about police brutality and the ways in which we we do this um it, but it it's not quite there because i think it is still joking there's there's a very prominent moment where the the police officer calls out in his hand, he's got a gun and it's this ridiculous trophy that in no way looks like a gun. And so I think you're supposed to laugh at that moment, yeah. which is obviously resonating with really, you know, harmful things and right. stories from our society. But like, and, and Monk throughout the film has derided stories that end with police. Br- like, like police brutality yes. is a specific thing he calls out as like a trope that like all these yes. stories end by puts up the character, get main character getting shot by the police. Right. Oh, and isn't it, that like, yeah, yeah. You, you're making me remember the ke- television commercial that plays in the background about like Black Stories Month on whatever channel. Oh, that's and it's right. just like a montage of people getting shot yep. and and violence. Yeah, it's it's so spot on with all those things. So it's it's really funny. Um, and and so I do think that that and well, in that one reminds me of the the Get Out ending that wasn't mm-hmm. right. Um, so yep. a, 
can we spoil Get Out? So, so Get Out. I mean, out you already ends- spoiled Little Women, so I don't. No, know. That's true. Uh, so Get Out ends with a relatively happy ending about the main character surviving, but originally was going to end with he's running away from this house, sees police. You think, oh my god, he's going to be saved, and the police just shoot him, and that's the end of the movie, essentially, which would have been bleak um and you know and yet would have been seen as a very powerful statement right and so i think the film is playing with that like oh you want serious stories but why does that have to always come at the cost of the black body right and i think that is yet another way people like you know people who have a film podcast should get called out sometimes and we are (laughs) a part of that class and should be called out sometimes that we um, because that is an actual like, oh, it made a powerful point. But what if you are a member of the black community and you only get to see, you know, your powerful stories count if if the person dies? And I think yeah. that that's fair to call all of us out on it. It's really good. Yeah. And I think oh, so. So I said I had mixed feelings and that it's mostly because of something you said a little earlier of the through the multiple endings. The film doesn't really give us anything through which to interpret what we're supposed to make of them. And obviously, mm-hmm. like the joke about. Oh, cut to black. Oh, no, that's too ambiguous. Like, we can't do that. Like, people aren't going to know. Like, I feel like it's almost doing that to us, maybe intentionally, mm. maybe satirically, right? Jokes on <laughs> us. I feel like this movie is very much like jokes on us kind of, kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, and I, yeah, I feel like so that was the only reservation because I was like, well, that like, I feel like that's making my mind go in so many different directions. But I was kept wondering, was there one direction the film wanted my mind to go in? Mm. Um, and maybe not. And maybe that's that's and that's fine. Um, but the other thing, too, is like showing Monk selling out because it's something you mentioned it earlier as well. Showing him selling out just like the, and like sort of becoming the character that he loathed so much. I feel like that's part of the debate, right? Because it's like. If we're saying black authors and creators shouldn't be profiting off of stories that play off of our demand for stereotypes, isn't that reinforcing the sort of classist narrative? Like, like I don't narrative is not the right word, but like cl- classist impulse. Like, isn't that isn't that counterproductive too? Right? I think is maybe yeah. what the film's suggesting is like because because and I think that's what's so powerful about the family narrative and them being. Um, you know, upper middle class or like, you know, of, of a higher social status than all the stereotypes, but at the same time still financially struggling. And like the, then that monk has a very dire financial need because suddenly he has to pay for all of this care for his mom, who has Alzheimer's, right? And he doesn't ha- don't know where the money for that's going to come from other than profiting off this fake book that he created, right? And yeah. so, the, so then it becomes, the stakes become very real of like, are we really in a position to tell creators of color that they can't make money off of, <laughs> off of this type of stuff if they want to, right? Like, isn't that also a part up? Isn't that also another version of the wrong people sort of determining what is okay and not okay for artists, right? I don't know. Well, and, and you're definitely in territory that we can give our thoughts and our views on, but they're going to necessarily not right, be ever limited, be yes. able to fully uh, embrace all that. But um, I only just now remembered, uh, and apologies to listeners, I did see this a little bit ago, that those three endings we just talked our way through aren't actually the last beat. So the the last beat of the film is really interesting in terms of the question you just asked, because Monk leaves his meeting with the producer, having kind of settled what the ending will be. 
gets into a flashy car on a Hollywood backlot, very much like a classic old Hollywood movie that we're suddenly on a backlot. And he locks eyes with a a black, seemingly a a black actor who's an extra uh, playing, appears to be a slave from, you know, some kind of period film or something like that. And it's this, hugely striking image that's this black actor sitting there dressed as a slave with i think airpods in right like mm-hmm. and he's just chilling between he's on break or and, whatever yeah 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 it's it's not a any kind of special like timey-wimey thing or anything like that and and they kind of lock eyes and i think does the extras just give him like a what's up or or something like that like a or, nod or a wave or some some sort of acknowledgement yeah, yeah. and that that's so interesting in context of what you just said because who gets to profit off that because we just asked a whole bunch of interesting stories about who gets to tell the stories and who's authorized Mm -hmm. to tell the stories and here you have you know the kind of lowest class in hollywood the actor's lowest class and it's like i think monk in that moment the way i read that moment is monk is saying like you know we just got to we just got to perform sometimes, yeah. right? And you just got to perform what what is in demand. Yep. And there's, I think you're meant to think there's no shame in performing it and getting yours, right? Getting right, right, getting right. your pay, getting your yep. accolades, whatever it is. Um, and it's a really kind of, and then I think they just kind of peel out in the car and are off living yeah. a fancy LA life, which you can speak to. But uh, yeah, I, it's 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 a really but cool he, you moment. You can tell he on. feels grossed out by it. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of like, oh. Like what am I? Like, I'm what am I a part of? Yeah, like, yeah. And yeah, like he, his, because it. he's just come from the scene where it's the white executive telling him what he can and cannot do by t- in telling his own story, right? Literally, that's what he's doing. He's being like, no, not that, not that version. You're telling your story, your personal story, and yet I am going to put all these restrictions on what you can and can't do with it, right? Um, yes. And so the extra is just like a visual representation of that, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. And, and it made me it made powerful. me think of Twelve Years a Slave, a movie that got tons of Oscars mm. and kind of fits into this category of like, oh, are the only thing only stories about black people if they're unless they're because I think he says at one point they're either plantation stories or like gang violence, right? Or like uh, the stories yeah. of the ghetto or the plantation, right? He uses those two tropes. Um as reference points. And so we, we get both of them here, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting note to end. I, I actually, I'm thinking a lot about, we talked so much about the ending of killers of the flower moon and how it made sure to unsettle you. And I mm. think it's doing something pretty similar to that, which is in case you felt satisfied that you had right. just, you know, participated in something to redeem yourself. Like, nope. Like, right. Maybe. Yeah. It's, it's a I great like it. moment. Um, Okay, that makes me wrap my head around like what it's trying to do more, which is good. Um, mm. Anything else before? Oh, I guess we didn't do, we haven't done rhetorical situation. And oh, I feel we, like there's definitely should, some connections we can make there. We should definitely do that. Before we leave kind of general observations, one thing that hasn't come up that I want to shout out. Uh, this is a Boston movie and it was really yeah. fun to see Boston. Um, uh, so uh, this is like the lamest of humble brags, but I saw the holdovers and uh, immediately left the theater walking through uh, the lobby of the Somerville movie theater, which is in the movie, the holdovers. And I saw American fiction. And uh, when he exits the award ceremony, that's one of the Emerson college theaters right in downtown crossing. So you see him run under a marquee and then, there's um, 
there's billboards of some kind behind him. Um, and I, so when I exited the movie theater downtown and was walking <laughs> to my subway, I immediately walked right there. And Amazing. it was really fun to see. Um, I was dying to figure out where the classrooms were because I've spent so many time, so much time on different campuses around Boston, but I couldn't piece that together. The, um, the bookstore is Brookline Booksmith, which is an outstanding uh, independent bookstore. Uh, not the one my wife was an employee of. And I asked her and she said they did receive the email asking if they would be available for filming, but it required them to close down for a day at a time during the year. They didn't want to give up a day's mm. worth of business uh, to shooting. So um it is Brookline Booksmith, a, a fantastic bookstore. And uh, the only bummer about that is they make a joke about how it's a chain bookstore when Booksmith is one of the greatest independent oh. bookstores. But they're pretending it's a Barnes and Noble or, yeah, or yeah, some yeah. such uh, for the point of the joke. So uh, so those those are a few shout outs. The, the book is set in Washington, D.C. So I just have to imagine this is our Massachusetts tax breaks. Just stealing business away Maybe. from Virginia. Uh, it was why they came up here. And the last connection I'll make, uh, just again to show that this was made in a lab for me, uh, in the book, it this the book award he does in this film is um, a New England book award of some type. In the actual uh, novel, it's uh, the National Book Award, uh, which my wife was a judge for uh, a few years ago. So uh, we did. They talk about the process of getting mailed, uh, you know, six hundred books. We lived that. Uh, the UPS man thought we were running some kind of scam because we just kept getting. <laughs> packages of books and she did all the work on that so um i'm dying for her to see this because i'm like i think they made your life kind of into a movie but also made it not at all about you so uh it's it's kind of an interesting connection so silly and personal but but those uh definitely impacted my view of this movie if if people are like this is nowhere near as good as greg made it out to be it's like it just was my life in a movie so it was it was cool <laughs> for me it was the the not beach house but the other house that they live in I was like, that feels so much like so many brownstones or houses in Boston that I've been in, especially in like either the South End or um, uh, like anywhere on the Orange Line, basically. Yeah, I was thinking out in JP. It was a little more Victorian than your holdovers has a classic triple decker, which I would associate with parts of the city. But but yeah, it does feel very much in this area. I haven't looked up where the house was. I'm sure people know but uh yeah it, it, yeah, be, it was a good representation um but yeah that felt so i was like it transported me i was like whoa i've, I've been in a house <laughs> like this this, this is amazing <laughs> so i think yeah we'll, we want to pop in not not dwell too too long because i do want to get to some oscars talk too and kind of come full circle but we're going to talk about the rhetorical situation a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experiences So in the teaching of writing, and I, I should mention that, you know, most of us, the, the, all the regulars on the Long Take Review are writing professors in case that was like seemed like it was coming out of nowhere. And, but in the <laughs> teaching of writing, something we are all familiar with on the show, the rhetorical situation refers to any contextual factors that influence composing and interpretation. Are there factors like that or just sort of like any academic connections that you sort of are seeing as you're watching this movie? I 
I think the first one I'll pull out uh, thinking specifically about the rhetorical situation is that um, and and I think we've hit on a bunch. But one thing we haven't talked about is this feels like a very 2023, 2024 movie, right? Mm. That this feels like it's such a rich text because it is so tied into how we are talking about race and representation and in uh, in America today and the questions you raised before about who is authorized to tell a story and who gets to shape that story once it starts being told, I think are really on the mind of a lot of cultural critics right now. So I think that gives it a a really interesting power in this moment. And I wonder if it will last because I, I think I think that's kind of an unanswerable question because it depends what society does and how society does or does not change. But I do think to think about it as a, a kind of bottle of uh, this time or an encapsulation of this time it works well for me. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Um, and I feel like it also worked for me. It works really well. And I don't know if I would have thought about this before our conversation, but as we were talking, I was sort of thinking about how sort of there's a reckoning with this, but specifically with teaching um, and with writing and in particular academic writing and the teaching of academic mm. writing. Um, and so the, the, the critic, you know, I'm used to only invoking this person's name in like con conference proposals and, <laughs> and, um, and like promotion uh, files and stuff like that. But um, in a way, like big, huge figure in the field of rhetoric and composition and really his big theory is of the white habitus and how that relates to the history of academic writing and academic writing style specifically and what mm. kind of whiteness is encoded in that right so um so this film really may, makes me think of like a parallel between of that because the same it's sort of having the same staging the same conversation that we have about student writing and right like of like do we perpetuate the the genre tropes the stylistic choices the expectations of academic writing when that style of writing cannot really be separated from whiteness or it's like you know like mm. it, it, this, that style comes from uh you know historically white voices and and so like you know in in the our field there's sort of like two camps right there's the camp of like well we can't just let students write whatever however they want <laughs> I feel like I hear that all the time. Like we can't just, yeah. it's the argument against um, what in our field is called code, code meshing, right. Of like, you can't let a student slip into like a dialect that's a representative of themselves and then go back to academic writing in an academic paper. That's great. That's madness, right. We can't just have like a free for all. So that's one side. And the other side is like to do any less would be oppressive. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, so the, it's almost like the reverse monk stance, I think. Yeah. Right which is really interesting and is making me rethink it in an interesting way. Cause I think Monk is sort of fighting against like, he's like, no, you know, me being super erudite and wearing a sweater vest, right. Is still can be my version of blackness. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, but then like, there's so many other academics who are constantly telling him, no, like you have to take on black vernacular. Like that's the way that's your path to freedom. And he's just like, that has nothing to do with anything about me. Right. And so, so it's really interesting um, to think about the sort of double standards maybe is the word that we might use. Yeah. We're trying to quote unquote, like be more inclusive and, and solve all these social problems. <laughs> 
no, well, I think that's exactly right. And and again, you know, it's I've had a few interactions lately where I start talking about something that we talk about all the time, such as code meshing or code switching, and like um, people are like, "What are you talking yeah. about?" But but you know, again, I I think when I talk about my teaching to somebody outside our profession, they tend to think like I am teaching grammar, right? I should be teaching people how to speak properly and how to uh, structure their sentences and so on. And and I think you know, so much of what our profession is interested in is unpacking that word properly. Like mm-hmm. who get to de- gets to decide what proper English is. Um, a lot of people who are skeptical of, of what gets called standard written English have essentially renamed it standard white English, right? Because the valued vernacular comes from or the val- valued dialect comes from the ways in which we um, we have encoded power into our language and to try to recognize that in unmaking that power is Unmaking that power is the only way to actually make an open academic space for all students to come in and feel valued. Now, in case that's too crazy, you know, it it comes down to when I'm actually like grading papers and there are times when a student will say, so I, I was, it was actually in an email. It wasn't in a paper. The other day, a student wrote to me that when they read in a textbook, um, the information goes in one eye and out the other. And I was like, what? in one eye and out the other. What are you talking about? It's in one ear and out the other. Mm. And then I sat there for a long time. Not that I was about to correct this email, but I was like, is there any way in which in one eye and out the other is less valid than in one ear and out the other? Like, no, like it's exactly the same thing, but it's unidiomatic. So we assume that students have to learn a set of references and idioms that fit with our dominant culture. When in reality, we have to be encouraging them to kind of develop their own authentic voice. I always say it as it both honors the rules, but breaks them when they need to. And I think Mm. that's part of what's going on here. But all that is to say, I think you're right that Monk is actually displaying his ability to code switch in a way to argue that he shouldn't have to, right? That he he has access to uh, the black street vernacular that the, the market is demanding. And as does... Centara Golden Issa Rae because we see her do it right the the whole gag of her first scene is that she's speaking as a very you know eloquent uh articulate literary critic like all the hallmarks of that kind of standard discourse and then when she switches to reading the book it's this big gag because she immediately switches into that vernacular that that people are like yes that's what I expected you to sound like I didn't expect you to sound like this yeah Right. And one of the calls with the big publisher that throws a ton of money at them, I feel like when Monk says hello or introduces himself on the call, he hasn't code switched. And she's mm. just like, oh, oh, like she gets all like confused and yeah. and like dis- like almost disappointed. And then he's like, he goes, he, you know, I'm not going to do it because that's going to be really problematic. <laughs> but the, I don't want to either. Uh, but, but but he slips into the sort of ghetto vernacular, right? The, di- the dialect that he thinks she wants to hear. And then she's like, oh, okay. I was sorry. I was confused for a moment. But now, now you make sense <laughs> to me, right? In a way that's yeah. just so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it's just, yeah, it's this really interesting question. I have, so I have, this assignment that I do at the end of the semester and that, yeah. So listeners, this is, this is way more teacherly than we usually (laughs) go, but we, I think we haven't done a proper rhetorical situation for a while. So I think we're really, it's, there's a lot to to go into it probably. Um, But I have this assignment at the end of the semester where I tell students, okay, 
choose a previous assignment in which like basically my course is like each assignment is a different genre and i'm like choose one of those and particularly in particular one that you felt like was suppressing your own voice in some way and write it in a language that however you want it could be like linguistically different it could be you don't like punctuating sentences like you could like <laughs> or like you are you use you know a gen z slang or whatever whatever it is um and you can change the style however you want if you no longer have to appeal to the original reader of the mm. original version of the assignment and you have total freedom you're just writing it for yourself to kind of reflect you what does it look and sound like and so when I first did this assignment, I think I was like the people in American fiction where I was like, no, like when I'm grading them, I was like, I was like, this sounds just nor quote unquote normal. I was like, this sounds <laughs> like plain, dry academic writing. And mm. uh, where's like, why aren't you, why aren't you dropping into another language? Cause I know, you know, multiple languages. Why aren't you, I don't know. Like, I was like, where's the flavor? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, not spicy enough <laughs> right yeah. and and then i stepped back and i was like oh gosh i'm part of the problem like like who mm. am i to tell these students what is quote unquote their natural or quote unquote authentic voice like what if it, it what like and so i realized that i had these kind of expectations that once i let them do this they'd all be like writing in like crazy different styles right and then and yeah. most of them were like no this is how i write like <laughs> this is just my voice and yeah i mean i think there's a valid question there that is that their voice or is that the voice they've only cultivated because right. it was allowed in the spaces they wanted to be in um a separate issue from that but i i think your point there is is really good that it's a reminder that I think we probably both teach our students that all language is performative. You just yeah. forget you're performing. And, mm. um, you know, we we have, a, you know, I, I, I think we, we probably both talk to students a lot about, like, you have to perform professionalism with me. And it's all very false. Like, if a student writes me an email that's like, what's up? I barfed. I got to get the assignment, yo. I know exactly what they mean. And I could answer that question. But the expectation of the space is they have to perform respect towards yeah. me, respect towards the institution, respect towards the class. And uh, so my duty becomes telling them, like, even if I understood everything you said, I have to inform you that you have to perform it a different way. And mm. we have reasons why we do that. And just to tie back to the movie. I I could defend uh, so many of these choices uh, uh, that I make them, but they all are kind of go back to they are for capitalism because I want to prepare my students. I'm at an institution that really values what we call connected learning and making sure that um, students are prepared for the job market. And like, I need to teach them to write a good email because if they write their boss that email their first week, they get fired. And that's a reality I'm conscious of because I don't want that to happen to them. Well, why will they get fired because of that? Well, it's because their boss has their own ego and respect and all that. And it, it kind of all comes back to which parts of yourself are you willing to sacrifice to to sell out on right. to, in order to live and to order to do that? And man, that makes me feel uh, bummed out about what we do. But, uh, you know, I think it's it's part of the bargain literally all of us make. Hey, it's America. <laughs> and I guess like for me as a teacher, I feel like that's as long as I'm breaking the fourth wall about that with them every once mm. in a while to sort of be like, I know I'm teaching you to do this because if you don't, you won't get a job. Like, 
But at the same time, how problematic is it that you have to write this way? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so that's kind of my, that's how I've sort of dealt with it. So I don't feel like I'm part of the problem, but I'm, you know, I'm still doing it. Like I'm still, yeah, <laughs> I'm still teaching them how to have professional tone and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's well, and, and just because uh, we need to wrinkle more brains, that's then you performing that you are separate from them. And that's what the white people in this movie are doing, right? They're like, I'm right. not one of those white people, right? We, because I, I want to just be clear, I do the exact same thing you're, you're saying you do. And it's like, yeah, it's not me. It's the system. It's the man. But I, <laughs> I'm cool. Like, and, and by performing that way and, you know, teaching is a lot of performance. We also try to separate ourselves from um, these kind of problematic structures and, and virtue signal in the same way. So many of the, the white characters in the film are doing. So now I'm like, it's weird talking about the Oscars in the context of everything we've just said, because <laughs> the Oscars are very much like, like, like you said, this movie is indicting awards culture as much as anything. And actually yeah. the, I feel like they make a joke about, this is definitely going to win an Oscar, right? The movie that they're yes. making at the very end, right? Um, Once they decide on the ending, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, that's it. That's the, we're winning, winning the Oscar, right? <laughs> Get the, pack your bags. Uh, and and so that's really interesting. But, you know, the the reality is this film by Cord Jefferson, right, about all these issues is up for awards and yeah. and is try, still trying, you know, it's not like the, it's as a film, it's like to stay true to our message, we're not going to, we're going to deny any Oscar nominations <laughs> we're getting. You know what I mean? It's doing yeah. what Monk's doing and just trying to just trying to get ahead. Um, so, you know, this film has been nominated for Best Actor, Jeffrey Wright. Best Supporting Actor, Sterling K. Brown. Uh, best Adapted Screenplay, which is a hot category. That's a lot of <sighs> a lot of. It's a toughie. Yeah. It beat out Killers of the Flower Moon, which PT, you can listen to our, our episode from It's yesterday. unbelievable. Yeah. PT, not happy about. Um, <laughs> and um, and then best score. That's which, the question I, mark for me. Yeah. I don't know. But I think that, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I have comments about that on our other episode that I won't get into. But <laughs> yeah, I think that's it, right? That's. Uh, you got to five. Yeah. The two okay. acting, score picture screenplay yeah okay. those are the five yeah so which of those do you feel like if any does it have an actual chance of winning what is what is what does oscars night look for like for american fiction right now do you have to play the hollywood music oh i do i forgot <laughs> yeah, yeah i, I have such interrupt a, you like I have, times, but I, I have a, such a fraught relationship with this music um <laughs> all right so we're moving into oscars watch So going back to this question, what what does Oscar Sunday look like for American fiction? Well, I do think that all of our conversation tonight has made me think much more about how it is kind of doing a punk rock move of like, we don't want your awards. Like we're condemning all of this. Uh, and so it is kind of interesting that's there. Um, in my Oscar reactions, I didn't say the class of movies that got five nominations is a great little group of movies this year. It so, is. So that it, I'm impressed that this got so many because I wasn't expecting it. Do I think it will walk away with any of those? Uh, I I think it's going to be an uphill battle for any of those five. So I think a movie of this size, a debut film, I think Core Jefferson and Jeffrey Wright should be very pleased with the, the attention and the you know added uh, eyes on the screen it will get. 
But I think it's going to be a pretty quiet night for this film. What do you think? I think right now, yes. Uh, I But I am open to the possibility that that could change. I feel like mm. American fiction is the kind of movie that with the right campaigning and the right push between, because there's a lot of time left on the clock. And yeah. I think if it, you know, with the right push, with the right narrative, what that narrative should be, I'm not totally sure. Because um, what what Co- I'm thinking back, the moment I knew Coda was going to win Best Picture, sorry, not to like draw a direct comparison no. to Coda, but it's a smaller <laughs> movie that no one saw coming, and that the end, the last leg of the race pushed through. So that's like, I guess that's why I'm thinking of it. Um, but the the moment I knew Coda was going to win was when um, the cast went to the White House and they did a mm. bunch of press with in particular Jill Biden. Um mm. I mean I think Joe Biden was there too. But like but that was the thing was that it was Jill Biden like talking to them and interviewing them and doing a bunch of press with them. And then I was like, oh, this is really happening. Like this is mm. <laughs> um and and so I'm wondering what what the the American fiction version of that looks like where the cast and the, here's the thing SAG ensemble. Mm. The cast of this movie made it in a SAG ensemble, which in general, most Oscar pundits use as a sign. Like it's the, it's SAG's version of best picture. Like a lot of people right. just treat it that way. But it's also like if you get into SAG ensemble, that means like your crew, like the group of actors in this movie could just start touring. Like the, that's what the cast of Coda yeah. did. They started just kind of like making the rounds. And then people were like, oh, wow, this movie's so amazing. It's so important in terms of representation, right? I mean, you could in some way say that, like, American fiction could be about CODA. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> sort of how, how people responded to CODA. Uh, yeah. Again, we're, we're, we're all implicated in this. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so I feel like there is a path. Right now, currently, it doesn't really, if you go category by category, all the ones I just listed, I don't really see it, it winning anything right now. But that could change. I like that theory a lot. It also, you know, I think everything everywhere was ordained so early, but it would have disappeared had the cast traveling around not been really fun to put in different rooms. And I think the way this this cast appears, like these are a great group of actors that I would want to hang out with, but I don't know if they're popping. So so again, in the kind of wake of the announcements, I think a lot of people were surprised um, about uh, the Rustin nomination for Coleman Domingo. And by all accounts, it's because he's really fun to hang out with and people want to keep putting him in the room. And yes, they respect his craft and and so on. But I think this cast needs some of that energy. Mm. Um, that's a problematic thing to demand of people, like be really good, but also be fun. But uh, I do <laughs> think it's, it's kind of what they need uh, to have that energy of, of keeping mm-hmm. in the room and keeping in the conversation as a part of this. I think, as and I alluded to this very early in the episode, I think the rollout of this movie was absolutely terrible, and that really hurt it. So I think I have the facts right that this was supposed to be out for Thanksgiving, and then because of the actor strike and other factors, they bumped it into December, which mm. put it right smack dab with all those other movies that were getting a lot more attention. And I think it it got lost in the shuffle. It was one I was really looking forward to. So I made sure I got out opening weekend, but it was not a very full theater. And it has stayed in theaters and expanded here and there. I know kind of it was in... It was in the the AMC near me that does the art house movies for like two weeks. And then it finally trickled down to the other AMCs near me. Um, so I think it did find its way uh, eventually to to more screens. 
but it hasn't been a major driver of conversation. It bubbled up a little on Letterboxd, but kind of disappeared again pretty quickly. I don't think it's anywhere up near the top at the moment of the, I'm speaking of the most popular list on Letterboxd, which I use as a bellwether of what film nerds are are into. And it's still Saltburn, baby. It's been number one for like a month at this point. Um, So I do think that... So you won't understand this because you weren't at our recording last night, but I'm now supposed to play that every time you mention Saltburn. So you're going to have to go listen to the other episode. Um, yeah. PT will explain in the other episode, but sorry. All right. Fantastic. I thought that was a, a gesture. Greg, talk about score. I don't think John Williams will win for the Indiana Jones score, nor do I think he <laughs> no. should. But the main reaction I have heard to the score nomination for this film is what was the score? And I'm sorry how disrespectful that is, but I kind of felt the same way. I, I couldn't remember any big score moments. It's just not that kind of movie. And I'm sure there's very good work for what it is, but it's not a score that's that's really flashy. Right. Um, From what I remember, it's a very kind of quiet, contemplative, staring out into the ocean kind of score. Like that, those are the, that's the, the scenes where they're on the beach are the ones where I'm like, I remember there's even mm, music at all. Um, so yeah. I think that's probably, I haven't, I'm, you know, I'm curious to go back and listen to it now on its own without watching the movie. Cause I haven't done that. I've done that for a bunch of the other best score nominees, but um, let me tell you, Killers of the Flower Moon, that score slaps on its own. Yeah. It's so good. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. Oppen- I mean, Oppenheimer too, but that's like the obvious, yeah. the obvious uh, favorite, but, and, well, and only because I think he's been neglected. Sterling K. Brown is awesome in this movie. Um, I mean, neglected in our conversation. I think this nomination is well-deserved. He's well-liked. Um, another hugely popular TV star on a show I never checked out, but was a presence in people's home for a long time. And people love him for that reason. He is another fantastic example. He is, uh, a, I, I believe the character's arc is that he has recently come out as gay and this has caused him to get divorced. And he's kind of figuring out his own identity now as a gay man and what that's going to mean, which is the perfect kind of, again, this is a typical family story. I think most families now have somebody, uh, you know, queer in the family that is trying to figure out that and the family is reacting to that and so on. And that just, you know, fits right into the cores of this. And you, I think you can easily dismiss him as a joke, but he gets a really good speech and you realize that while you've written him off and had your sympathies with Monk, it's actually Monk who has a lot to learn from his brother as opposed to the other way around. So it's a fantastic performance. I think the nomination is the prize in this case. I I just, it's a tough category this year. It's a lot Um, of competition. Yeah. But uh, people have, if you listen to the letters episode, you know, I am totally fine with him getting this instead of Charles uh, Melton. Not that it was either or, but, you know, that that was a tight category. And, and I think this is a deserving nomination. He has a pre- one or two pretty good Oscar reels I can think of. The, the one scene mm. where he's saying, I really wish dad could have known all of me now that I know all of me. I'm not getting that the the words on that correct, but yeah, that's essentially but the really... spirit of his monologue. It's really, really impactful. Um, and I feel like they do such the screenplay does such a good job of making the dad a character, even though he's not present in, in the movie. Mm. Um, and that all the, all the kids are talking about him, right? As it like as if he's still there, kind of like or his pre- his presence, or like the dad, even though he's long gone, 
is still sort of like messing with all of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And their dynamic and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Which is another version of the absentee father that yes. is a real version that instead they're getting the stereotype version. Um, the, the dad also is, uh, uh, has had an affair and that is that did make the movie it's a little more prominent in the book um and so that's a like another version like this is the kind of thing all families yeah. deal with is you know infidelity and the ramifications of that um i believe in this one they sorry uh, in the film they do find out they have another sister but she's not in this movie whereas uh she appears in the book they so in the book they, there's another sister oh yeah so the the father was unfaithful and had a child out of wedlock wow. and they okay. connect with that i mean they kind of imply there's a line in the movie where they're like did you really think dad was just going to a bunch of medical conferences or whatever you know what i mean like yeah there's some yeah. some exchange where like that it could like, it doesn't say anything about another child, but, like, it sort of sounds like he was gone so often he could have easily had another family somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I, I feel like it's probably, it's, it's, um, the continuity is there. I think, yeah. Yeah. The I think that that's probably the right read. Um, but, uh, yes. So, uh, and that a lot of that comes from Sterling K. Brown. Um, I, if I got to vote in the Oscars, I would probably give, uh, Jeffrey Wright the award just because I do really love him it would probably be more of a career award than a this specific part is so great but i think it is a worthy part of of a nomination um and it's the kind of you know i i don't think every best actor needs to be somebody screaming or blowing up an atomic bomb or um i don't know you're trying well, to think what's his, what's his oscar clip yeah is I, it i think it's gonna be one of the comedic moments yeah maybe one of the love moments but yeah well that that was the other choice for sterling k brown is yelling at the guy at the funeral uh is also just such a <laughs> i think yeah. that was the golden globe clip um so uh that that's there's potential to that that was um, your opening quote well. right like is that yes that, yeah says, yeah, yeah when they're gently uh getting rid of ashes he my my guy. favorite part of that I cried through that scene, by the way. But my favorite part of that is because is that they they are all yelling at him. Like Sterling yes. K. Brown is yelling at him the most. But I feel like all of them like are saying the same. Like you can tell they're all related to each other in that moment. Yep. Because <laughs> and that this is a, a neighbor that they've hated for a very long. Like they grew up with or something like that. They they all know really well. And like, you know, Philip, they, no they say derisively. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and it, to me, it, it speaks to that. Uh, like we can yell at each other and, and make fun of each other but whew, we are tight when when it comes down to it yeah. and nobody else from the outside gets to do that so um yeah I, it's a little sad that it, it probably won't get any of those um if i could grant it one it would be uh jeffrey wright um adapted screenplay it's uh, a really interesting adaptation but i think it ultimately just doesn't do quite enough to to compete with the right. really heavy works in and this. it in any other year, I think it would be like a very strong contender. But because this year the the batch of nominees is actually doing a lot of heavy lifting with adaptation, it's not just like they happen to be adapted and they're also getting these. Yes. Because I feel like that's actually usually what ad adapted screenplay is. It's like okay, we have to put them in this category because they're source material, but there's not like a like an interesting ad ad choice of adaptation. Whereas like a lot of the nominees, uh, the, the competition for American fiction this year. Like Oppenheimer is like it took a 400 page biography and turned it into this movie. I mean, I guess Killers of the Fire Moon should have been there for that reason, but was not. Yeah. Um, and then even yeah, Barbie, right? Like totally reinventing what the character can be and can do, right? Or what we would expect from a movie about Barbie. Um, 
So, so yeah, it'll be tough, I think. But uh, and I I don't know the source material for Zone of Interest well, but apparently it it really kind of took a seed and did something very different with it. Is right. my understanding. So same same kind of situation. So yeah. A tough beat, but, um, you know, again, I think a film of this scale, five nominations is enough that a whole bunch of people are going to seek it out. And again, to our previous conversation, if they can land it on streaming sometime soon, I think it'll do really well as people. I I know so many people now who just try to get the 10 best pictures done. And, you know, I think that's a great goal if you're a more casual fan. And that's what I used to do. That's what I started out doing. That's how I got into this whole thing. This whole mess. (laughs) Um, All right. Well. I think that's good. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Oh, my last shout out is if you like Sterling K. Brown in American fiction, there's a movie and I don't I don't know where it is now, like who has it. Mm. But it's I saw it at Sundance virtually last year and it's called Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Regina Hall and Sterling K. Brown play uh, a pastor and the pa- and and Regina Hall is yeah. his wife. And they like they're like scamming. Their, it's like they they they're running a mega church and they're kind of scammy. It's very funny. <laughs> It came out, right? Like, you're not saying it hasn't been released yet. It, like, I don't know. I, I say, just don't remember where when think, it came out or if it came I out. I think it I was remember. on, like, Peacock for a while. And, okay. you know, as uh, happens now, you know, sometimes they don't keep them on the service. Uh, no, it is still currently available on Peacock. So I'm going to take oh, that recommendation yeah, you all should the totally way to it's my so living room funny. and go watch that. So that sounds fun. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so thank you so much. And I like, as always, whenever I talk to you about a movie, I feel like we, I help, I come away with a better understanding of it, which is so fun yeah. and rewarding. So thank you Likewise. for that. Do you want to tell the fine listeners where they can find you on the internet and on other podcasts? Well, um, I forgot this in the social media plug, but uh, please get out there and tell us who you are, dear listeners. If you've made it this far, we really want to know who you are and <laughs> everything about you. We want names. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we're what we're trying to do is build out our community a little bit more. And we want to um, all the hosts, uh, all the regular hosts are on Letterboxd. And you can find Jen, PT, myself, and Antonio. Um, we've plugged our accounts before. I'm Ion Cannon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. We are trying to tag all our reviews with LTR pod so that if you did a search in letterbox tags uh, for LTR pod, you should find us. And what we're hoping is we can start to see who else is out there listening. So if you tag your reviews with LTR pod, we'll look at them. We'll see if there's any we can bring into, you know, if, if we finally get to a poor things episode, we'll see if anybody has tagged a poor things review, for example. Um, and we'd love to just know what your taste is and who you are as movie people. Cause I think that is uh, the best way to get to know somebody. So, uh, and yeah, I'm on the internet. Um, I on Canon, I am uh, everywhere on podcasts of late, um, but you can find me on Instagram and I tend to plug wherever I actually am appearing at any given time. Nice. Thanks Jen. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Qui-Gon Jen. You can also find me on threads and Instagram at Subchakchai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I. Uh, and if you want to see all of my crazy Charlie Day meme Oscar predictions right before the nominations came out, that's the latest <laughs> thing that's on my Substack, thelongtake.substack.com. All right. Great conversation, Greg. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can follow The Long Take Review on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe.
subscribe for free to receive new podcast episodes as well as written reviews of films with Oscar buzz and new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.